Hi, and welcome to Lakeshore Update. I'm Dee Dotson. On this edition of the podcast, you'll hear the latest on former Congressman Pete Muskowski officially taking over as chairman of the Gary Chicago International Airport Authority. Farah Hosri reports on the huge emotional toll caring for COVID patients is having on doctors. And Chris Nolte has a conversation with Valparaiso University Associate Professor of Accounting Anton Lewis about rising consumer prices as the rate of inflation continues to increase. All of that and more on this edition of Lakeshore Update. Former Congressman Pete Vesklosky officially took over as chairman of the Gary Chicago International Airport Authority this week, leading the first meeting since Governor Holcomb appointed him to the airport's governing board. Vesklosky told the Times that he would approach the position with a sense of urgency for the airport. He said the board needs to be professional and deliberate, but there is a need to be urgent to make sure the facility meets its fullest potential. Holcomb's appointment of Visklosky as Airport Authority Board Chairman came after consultation with Gary Mayor Jerome Prince, who replaced Gary's four appointees on the seven-member board last fall. The Airport Authority also welcomed a new Porter County appointee, Tom Collins Jr., the Vice President of Luke Brands. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Construction of Franciscan Health Crown Point's new hospital has reached a major milestone. The final steel beam was put in place during a topping-off ceremony Wednesday. The $200 million hospital at the southeast corner of I-65 and U.S. 231 is expected to open in 2024. John Gilmore is the president and CEO of Ton and Blank Construction. He says the project remains on schedule and on budget. And thanks to the latest technology, exam rooms, electrical distribution rooms, and even bathrooms are being built off-site. They will be delivered 100% finished, including the flooring, the ceilings, plumbing fixture, lights, and with the toilet paper hanging on the wall. Crown Point Mayor David Uran says the new hospital will transform Northwest Indiana's medical services and bring new opportunities for the city's largest employer. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. The first four electric buses for the Gary Public Transportation Corporation will be out on the streets in late spring and make GPTC just the third bus company in the state to use electric vehicles. GPTC's planning and marketing manager, David Wright, says Indianapolis and Bloomington already purchased is first electric buses, and he hopes one day that all city buses are electric. The new buses will seat about 32 passengers, and each costs more than $800,000. They will be used on the Broadway Metro Express route that runs with limited stops from downtown Gary out to the Lake County Government Center in Crown Point. 
Drive Clean Indiana, formerly South Shore Clean Cities, conducted a study along with GPTC comparing the different types of fuels and the cost to operate, the amount of electricity it will take to charge the buses, and the reduced amount of maintenance is a savings over the cost of operating and maintaining a diesel fuel bus. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. Racists are set for the May primary. The Post Tribune reports that 104 Lake County candidates have filed by Friday's deadline. Seven candidates are running for county clerk, including incumbent Lorenzo Arandondo, former clerk Mike Brown, and former coroner Marilee Fry. Meanwhile, Lake County Sheriff Oscar Martinez Jr. is facing Democratic primary challenges from Richard Legan, Maria Trakovich, and Anthony Williams. In the auditor's race, incumbent Democrat Peggy Halunga Katona will face Eduardo Fontanez and Susan E. Callahan in the May primary. In Porter County, Republicans Peggy Guess Harper and Sue Ness have filed to run for county assessor, with the winner facing Democrats Valerie Wasserman in November. Other contested Porter County races include the District 2 County Commissioner Republican Party, District 2 County Council Democratic Primary, and both parties' primaries for County Council District 1. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. A Lake County Democratic Party caucus selected Highland Clerk Treasurer Michael Griffin to fill the remainder of retired State Senator Frank Mervan's term of office. The precinct committee people voted at Wicker Park in Highland last Saturday. Out of 79 possible votes, Griffin outpolled challenger Martin Del Rio 48-31. to Griffin says he's ready to go to work at the State House, especially now that it is midway through the 2022 session. He says that bills have passed from the House to the Senate and he wants to learn as much as possible. Both Griffin and Del Rio have filed to run for the office in the May 3rd Democratic primary election. Now, another caucus will meet soon to select a Highland Town Clerk Treasurer to finish Griffin's term that expires at the end of 2023. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. Voters in the Valparaiso School District will consider a property tax referendum this spring. The school board Monday agreed to put an operating referendum on the May 3rd ballot. Superintendent Dr. Jim McCall says it would let the school corporation continue the initiatives put in place thanks to the 2015 referendum, but at a lower tax rate. Altogether, this is a very student-centered plan. We're talking about 30 full-time teachers, uh, multiple support staff, and that continued retention bonus for all teachers and staff. Specifically, the referendum asks voters to extend the property tax increase 
while lowering the maximum rate from more than 20 cents per $100 of assessed valuation to less than 15 cents, which McCall notes would keep Valpo below many neighboring districts' referenda. But some local residents voiced concerns Monday. Brian Williams did not think the burden should be directly on the voters. Why are you asking us? It's the job of the state legislature of Indiana to fund public education. You are telling the taxpayers of Valparaiso that the state lawmakers are not doing their job. Why don't you tell them that? Others opposed the timing of the referendum, noting that the school district recently received COVID money while some families are still struggling because of the pandemic. Some also questioned the cost of the referendum process itself. The school board Monday formally agreed to hire law firm Barnes & Thornburg and accounting firm LWG, but neither engagement letter appears to set a maximum price. Instead, each firm may charge a range of hourly rates depending on work being done and the individual doing the work. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. Three inmates at Indiana Department of Corrections facilities, two of them sentenced from Lake County, have received medical clemency from Governor Eric Holcomb, his first since taking office. Holcomb says that the three inmates are bedridden and diagnosed with terminal health conditions. The governor said that none of the men pose a threat to society. Charles Calhoun is 83 years old and was sent to prison on a murder conviction in Lake Superior Court in 1982. He served 40 years of an 80-year sentence. The warden at Westfield Correctional Facility says Calhoun is suffering from dementia and unable to care for himself. Jerome Macklin is 70 years old and serving a life sentence on a Lake Superior Court conviction for rape and kidnapping from 1978. He served 43 years of his sentence, but a gunshot wound he received while behind bars in 1985 left him a paraplegic. The warden at Miami Correctional Facility asked for medical clemency. Calhoun, Macklin, and Alfonso Griffin, serving a sentence from St. Joseph County, will be released to the supervision of the parole board and will serve the remainder of their lives at a skilled nursing home under the state's care. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. The Indiana Senate could vote next week on changing the state constitution to change the line of succession to be governor. Here's Network Indiana's State House reporter, Eric Berman. If a governor resigns, dies, or becomes incapacitated, the lieutenant governor takes over. If that office is vacant, the Constitution spells out the next six officials in line. But Superintendent of Public Instruction was replaced last year with an appointed Secretary of Education. Richmond Senator Jeff Rotz says the amendment would take that office out of the mix. It's under the premise of being a appointed position instead of an elected position. Amending the Constitution 
constitution requires a second yes vote by the legislature in the next two years, then final approval by the voters in 2024. Eric Berman, Network Indiana. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. A Senate committee heard legislation Wednesday that would seal eviction filings in some instances. Senate advocates have long argued that eviction filings can serve as a permanent scarlet E that harms a renter's chances of getting housing in the future, even if an eviction filing against them is ultimately thrown out. The bill passed out of the House in late January. Randy Shelton is a retired veteran who had to leave his apartment after health complications left him unable to work and pay rent. Shelton agreed to leave his apartment so long as his landlord removed the eviction filing from his record. That never happened, which Shelton says has kept him from getting housing ever since. I know I'm not alone. There's thousands of Hoosiers having the eviction filings makes it impossible to find good, safe, quality housing. Tenant advocates say there are still some parts of the bill they'd like to see ironed out, including a stipulation that eviction diversion programs must be voluntary, but must also be tied to rental assistance. Advocates worry this might end eviction diversion programs for infractions other than non-payment of rent. The bill is expected to get a second hearing and some amendments as early as next week. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. The ACLU and journalist Abdul Hapkim Shabazz sue Attorney General Todd Rokita from banning Shabazz from his news conferences. Network Indiana's John Herrick reports. Shabazz says it's a First Amendment freedom of the press issue. Because my thing was, if Todd Rokita can do this to me, which has banned me, who's been covering Indiana government politics for almost 20 years from his news conferences, then what's to stop him from doing that to, say, somebody from WIBC or the, for the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette or you know, public radio? Shabazz wants to be allowed back into Rokita's press conferences and send a clear message to every elected leader in the state that you cannot ban the media from press events. John Herrick, Network Indiana. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Schools often ask parents of students with disabilities to sign non-disclosure agreements or NDAs in settlement agreements over special education disputes. Advocates say this prevents them from talking about their experiences with other parents of students with disabilities because they're afraid of legal and financial consequences if they speak out. That's Carla's experience. She's a parent from Northwest Indiana, and we're not using her name to protect her child's privacy and because she fears backlash from her school district. It's hard not to be able to talk to other parents who are in similar situations. It makes me feel like they still have some sort of power over me because they can still control what I say about this. A proposed bill in the Indiana State House could end the use of NDAs by schools in special education settlements. 
The legislation has passed the House and now heads to the Senate. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. As the pandemic drags on, doctors continue to be pulled away from their normal duties to care for COVID patients. It takes a huge emotional toll. And for early career physicians, it means less time for specialized training. Side effects public media's Farah Hosri explains. If you walk around Indianapolis, you'll see much of life has returned to normal, with major sporting events, social gatherings. But inside the hospitals here, it's the worst it's ever been. We have seen nothing like we see now. That's Dr. Gabriel Boslett, a critical care physician at IU Health. He hasn't had a weekend off for a whole month. The intensive care unit is completely slammed with mostly COVID cases. But he says the sheer amount of work is actually not the hardest part. When you walk out of the hospital doors, life is normal, which is a whole nother level of emotional difficulty for us. There's a a lot of collective trauma being created right now around the fact that those of us in the hospital feel like there's a, a lot of great suffering that is being unacknowledged by the general public and by our elected leaders. Boslett says that's especially hard for the young doctors he trains. He heads a fellowship program teaching early career doctors about lung illnesses and how to care for ICU patients. And COVID has kept them busy. The current generation of intensive care unit trainees will be some of the best trained in advanced, severe acute lung disease than we've ever had. Yet, as waves of COVID patients gobble up most of their time, trainees are missing out on other crucial aspects of clinical practice. Here's third-year fellow Dr. Claire Prohaska. You know, we're not really being trained to be pulmonary and critical care physicians. We're being trained to be COVID physicians. And that's because there's just not enough time to do things like lung cancer screenings, provide outpatient care, or work on important research. But there's one thing they're getting a lot of experience in. We've all become... Experts at telling families their loved one is going to die. I guess during my first year, I would keep track of how many people passed away when I was helping take care of them. But I think at this point, I can't count. Prohaska says patients are also more adversarial than ever before. She tells me about the time a young COVID patient she was caring for died. His wife was just like, it wasn't from COVID. And I was like, excuse me? This is 100% COVID did this. And she just didn't believe it. The family was just so upset with us. She understands when people get upset, it's misplaced grief. She's not looking for people to thank her. She's just frustrated with how pandemic politics make her job that much harder. I do get upset when they try arguing with me about vaccines or, you know, asking for ivermectin, you know, when their person is maxed out on the ventilator and we're doing everything we possibly can, you know, like things like that insult me. Not every doctor has been slammed with COVID cases this way, but many others have been pulled away at times to help with the huge COVID caseload. On top of that, hospitals have had to cancel elective surgeries. So some surgeons in training aren't getting as much experience. Dr. Jennifer Choi is the director of the General Surgery Residency Program at Indiana University. She thinks even if this doesn't affect a surgeon's competence, it likely will affect their confidence. But they do go hand in hand in someone's ability to function at a high level once they leave training. Choi says the full impact won't be seen for at least a few years, and they're trying to make up for those disruptions. 
We do skills labs where we maybe use a cadaver to help teach a procedure. And we might end up using that model in a more expansive way to fill some gaps elsewhere. But operating on a cadaver is not exactly like caring for a real patient with a warm beating heart whose family is waiting for them to come back home. Farah Yusri, Side Effects Public Media. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Valparaiso University professor of accounting Anton Lewis came on Regionally Speaking to talk about food prices, specifically the prices we are all paying at the market these days. He said he had to change a family dinner menu when he discovered just how expensive a piece of lamb is. And his students have an even tougher time finding something they can afford. Uh, students are price sensitive. So when even a small incremental increase in uh, various core items such as uh, uh, butter or bread or beer um, tends to mean that the students uh, uh, have something to say about it. Uh, some of the answers we, we've had have been quite insightful from, from some of the students as we go through things. Uh, one uh, would be, as we've mentioned in our previous uh, session together, the great resignation. That's mm-hmm. an interesting Uh, uh, matter to look at in terms of the uh, increase of the price level. So uh, the general thinking behind this goes, you know, labour is a bit of a shortage right now for many, many businesses, as we've said, which means because of the law of supply and demand, the less of something we have, the more you have to charge to get hold of it, which means we've got an increase in wages, which represents an increase in direct labour costs to businesses. Now, of course, businesses either they accept that cost and have a lower profit, which is problematic, or they pass that cost on through the price of their products and therefore increase the prices that we pay at the store. Mm -hmm. And that's one kind of method uh, that our prices are increasing. Uh, Another suggestion from students uh, might well be uh, the simple fact that protectionism funnily enough, throughout the world, has increased. Uh, Be it the Trump administration or the Biden administration, this is um, really beyond parties. We have found, be it our um, various rules concerning uh, uh, trade with, with the US and China, be it certain rules concerning trade with the US and Europe, we see barriers going up and arguably... In the past, we've worked hard to actually decrease the costs of doing business internationally. But now they've gone up again through really, in many ways, a particular belief in the advantages of protectionism. And that has increased the general price level. And if it costs more to do business abroad, i.e. when we export and when we import, those costs again tend to be tend to filter through to the prices we see in the shops. And that's kind of a, a supply-side cost-push inflation as a way of maybe mm-hmm. looking at that. I came across something over the weekend in reading uh, that got me interested. Certainly, and you brought it up in a way, because when we've all talked here lately about the inflation situation or, or stagflation, whichever you choose to, to call it, there were some concerns that have been raised by some economists that, that we could end up didn't say when, but we could end up into the economy of 
They were mentioning the post-Korean War because they were talking about a recession that led to unemployment. They were led to a very, very deep recession that led to a lot of people being uh, being laid off back then. And I wonder if we're unfortunately headed in that direction. And again, we're in this we're almost in a brave new world when it comes to dealing with what's going to happen next in terms of unemployment and um, in terms of inflation. Yes, this notion of stagflation, and in some ways we can uh, define it as stagnant growth combined with higher inflation, high persistent price increases. And for those who are old enough like myself, you might uh, remember we had some of this in the 1970s with stagflation. More recently, Japan, the country of Japan, has experienced low growth and high prices stagflation. And earlier on, around about mid-2021, the summer 2021, um, there were fears that we in America would be facing this prospect of persistently increasing price levels for some of the reasons that we've seen Mm -hmm. and actual poor growth. Now, what's happened, actually, is that actually hasn't happened. Some of the growth that we've seen, instead of stagnating, has been quite healthy. And there are a number of reasons for that. Um, Arguably, uh, the demand for certain products has increased. Some of this uh, has been from uh, the payments made to people to help them get over some of the most egregious parts of of being unable to work at the height of the pandemic, Uh, the free money, inverted commas, given out. Um, That coupled with very low Um, interest rates has meant that people had money in their pockets um, given to them by um, the federal government and also they had the ability to get um, very low-cost loans which meant people went out and bought cars right and Mm -hmm. this is this is quite interesting so there was a massive demand for cars now coupled with the fact that COVID-19 has destroyed our supply lines all over the world it's meant that supply has been constrained while demand has gone up which means the price of cars have gone up so really when we think about the car industry in some ways it's actually quite healthy we've got chip shortages Uh, you know the demand for uh, laptops for tablets for various electronic devices actually increased and it kind of got the demand was kind of buoyed if you like by the fact that the supply was constrained because we've got a chip shortage now so certain products in certain areas are how do we say doing very 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 well but we don't know if it's going to remain like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a classic company example might be uh, Peloton. I've got a Peloton. My wife got it for me, and she insisted I use it on a fairly regular basis right. Right, to uh, to try to keep healthy. And so we um, have noticed that Peloton, in the middle of the recession, when kind of nobody was going to gyms and nobody was really exercising in, in public settings, the share price of Peloton went through the roof. Now, we've managed, as, as we've said a little bit off air, uh, um, to... We're in a process of coming to an accommodation with living uh, with COVID-19, which has meant people en masse have gone back to these public spaces to exercise, which has meant they have no need to keep buying the Peloton bikes that are about $2,000. So actually, they've been unable to shift product, they've been unable to get the revenue, and their profits decrease. When their profits decrease, their share price goes down. And so now there are talks about whether Nike are going to go buy them or whether um, Amazon will buy them, which might you know, push their share price back up. But it's another uh, example of, of how certain areas of the economy 
are vulnerable to the, 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 the ebbs and tides, if you like, of supply and demand provoked by this situation of COVID-19. That's Valparaiso University professor Anton Lewis talking about food prices and prices in general as the COVID-19 pandemic continues. Regionally Speaking with host Chris Nolte is on air and online at 11 a.m. Mondays through Thursdays on Lakeshore Public Radio and lakeshorepublicradio.org. And program podcasts can be found there, too. For the latest in local news and information, tune in Monday at 6 a.m. for Morning Edition with local host Chris Nolte. Lakeshore Update is supported by the listeners and members of Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. Podcasts for Lakeshore Update are posted each Friday on our website, lakeshorepublicradio.org, as well as on NPR One. Make sure you search for WLPR and select us as your home station. Music for Lakeshore Update was written and produced by bensound.com. For Lakeshore Update, I'm Dee Dotson.